Okay, we are in First uh, Samuel. We had just about finished up First uh, Samuel chapter thirty last time. First Samuel chapter thirty. Let me just mention at the end of chapter thirty, it says in verse. 26, now David came to Ziklag and sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And so he, he's, he's taking these gifts and he's giving them, he's sharing these gifts with the people in the southern part of Judah. And you say, well, what gifts is he sharing? And that's from back up in verse 20. It said, so David had captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead of their other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. So David got a ton of sheep and cattle from this conquering uh, of the Amalekites. And, and uh, uh, this was given to him as his spoil for, for carrying out this battle. And he took of these and he shared it with 13 cities in southern Judah. These were the cities that it says that David used to go back when he, before he had gone for 14 months to the Philistines. Because you see in verse 31, And to those who were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. So David was moving from city to city. And it's interesting, this list of cities it gives at the end of chapter 30, it actually names two cities which were Levitical cities. Remember, the Levites were never given their own territory. They were just given cities within the territory of others. So it it names two Levitical cities. And we can understand why the Levites would be particularly open to receiving David as he's running from Saul because Saul had killed 85 of the Levitical priests and their entire families. And so, you know, they weren't too excited about Saul. And so that was a good place for David to hide. But let's pick it up in, in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. And this, is, this talks about the death of, of King Saul. Verse, thir- w- verse 1 in chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount, and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkshua, the sons of Saul. And the battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But he said, but but his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men that were together that day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled, and the Philistines came to live in them. And it came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and they stripped off his weapons and they sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth-shan. 
Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and walked all night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh, and they burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and fasted seven days. Okay, so it's an interesting passage. This is a short chapter that talks about the death of Saul. So it says that, that uh, uh, the, the Israelites, they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So remember that it, started, it was going to start out in the plain, in the plain of Jezreel, but Saul moved up to the mountain, to Mount Gilboa, which borders this plain, because the Philistines had lots of chariots, and chariots are ineffective in the mountains, especially those mountains. It's not like the rolling hills of, you know, when you go to the hill country of Texas. I mean, these, these are jagged and rocky, very hard to even climb for a person to climb, let alone ever trying to get a chariot up, up them. And then it says, and the, the, the Philistines overtook Saul. They killed three of his sons. So these are the sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchua, the sons of Saul. They killed three sons of Saul. Now, there were other sons of Saul, for example, Ishbosheth, which is going to be appointed the next king over the northern, king, over the northern kingdom, all, the, all the, 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 uh, the tribes except Judah, which David is to be appointed king of for seven years before David is able to assume kingship of all the twelve tribes. Uh, so so uh, Ishbosheth, though, was born after Saul became king because we know that he wasn't listed back when Saul became king. These sons were listed. Ishbosheth wasn't yet listed. Ishbosheth had to have been born shortly after Saul became king because it says he was 40 years old when he became king and Saul reigned right about 40 years. And it says the, the, uh, the battle went heavily against Saul and the archers hit him and he was badly wounded by the archers. So it says that Saul now has become wounded. His three sons are dead. Now he himself has become badly wounded by the archers. Badly wounded probably means that he knows he's not going to live very long. Badly wounded by the archers. So he turns to his uh, armor bearer, the young man that would assist him with his armor, and said, just go ahead, pierce me through. But the armor bearer is rightly afraid to do such a thing. I mean, this is the king. So, so Saul feels, rather than to be captured by the Philistines and, and be pierced through by the Philistines and be made sport of, I'll just take my own life. So he takes his own life on the battlefield, which is not entirely unusual to do that. And he takes his own sword, and it says he falls upon his own sword. And if you look in verse 5, it, uh, um, it says, When the armor bearer saw that Saul, saw that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men that were together that day. Now, I want to emphasize that it says that his armor bearer saw, saw that Saul was dead. He saw it with his own eyes, Saul was dead. Not only that, if you say, well, maybe he thought Saul was dead, but Saul wasn't really dead. It says in the next verse, thus Saul died. So is there an argument as to whether Saul is alive or dead? Seems to be no argument, right? The inspired scripture writer says Saul was dead. The reason I emphasize this is because what we're about to see in the next chapter. But uh, what we also see here is that the, ar the, the archers had hit Saul. There's no word about the horsemen. 
There's no word about chariots. It's just the archers had hit Saul. And, and, and so very often the archers would see people very far away and they would just shoot in an arc and, you know, just arrows dropping. It doesn't have to be a direct shot. It can be these arcing shots. And, and uh, um, whether it was a direct shot intentionally attended at, at, at Saul or, or whether it was, was more of an arching shot, we don't know. But we do know he was injured that way. Then he fell on his sword. It says that it came about in verse 8, it came about... On the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So he was not found until the next day. They came to strip the slain and they found Saul. For all they knew, Saul had gotten away. They didn't know. They found Saul. They found his three sons. But he wasn't found. His body wasn't found until the next day. They stripped off his weapons. No word about his, his, his uh, crown. They stripped off his weapons. They put them, they sent these to the house of his gods, they cut off his head, and, they, and, and what's implied here is they also cut off the heads of his, his three sons, and they sent that, those around, and they took the bodies, the headless bodies, and they tacked them up to the wall at, at, at Bathsheba. So they, 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 uh, they put them up there. And then it says in verse, in verse uh, 11, so in, in, in verse... Um, Actually, it had said earlier that, that uh, when the Israelites had seen this, when the men of Israel had seen this, in verse 7, all, those who lived in the valley and those who also lived on the Jordan, on the other, beyond the Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River, had heard about this, they fled, because they knew the Philistines were coming in. And the Philistines moved in and occupied their cities, which was very normal in, in those days. But what's interesting is in verse 11, Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose, walked all night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his three sons from Bethshan, and came to Jabesh and burned them there. So, who remembers what happened in Jabesh-Gilead? Anybody remember? Jabesh-Gilead, 32 years earlier, this was the first battle that Saul had as king. Saul was anointed king, he went back to farming, and then it was years later that he was called upon. There was a, there was a uh, uh, remember the, that uh, Jabesh Gilead was, on the, was 15 miles away, actually from Mount Gilboa, the city of Jabesh Gilead. They had been threatened and, and, and uh, uh, their city was surrounded. And the king that had surrounded their city said, we're going to either give up or we'll, 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 uh, we'll attack you. But if you give up, we're going to cut out the right eye of every male among you. And so this is what we had read earlier in 1 Samuel. And Saul rose up as king and he walked all night with his troops. He conquered that, that evil king and he delivered Jabesh Gilead. 32 years later now, they remember, they still remember that Saul had delivered them and they weren't going to allow his body to be hanging on a wall with his, his three sons. So they walked 15 miles take the bodies down, bring them back to Jabesh Gilead. It says they burn their bodies, which is quite atypical. For, for you, you never see this again in the Bible. You never see cremation as we know it. There was always burying. And this wasn't cremation in the sense of, it's very hard to burn, to cremate somebody just with a, a fire because you, you have to burn the bones. This is done in a furnace today. So the furnace gets much higher than just an open fire. Um, but but uh, uh, they burned the body probably to keep the body from being abused from the Philistines saying, let's go back and get those bodies again. So they burned the bodies and it says, then they buried the bones under the tamarisk tree. 
But what's interesting is they remembered the good that was done to them 32 years before. You know, the Bible talks about be good to your friend and to your father's friend. So many of these people, it was 32 years before that this had happened, many of these people that marched probably themselves had not even been born when Saul had delivered them. Because this is usually the work of younger men to march 15 miles, you know, take on this challenge of pulling down bodies and then march 15 miles back. And, but they remembered their father's friends. Sometimes I, I, I see people and I think, you know, you don't know what this, this person did for your family. You really, really ought to treat them much better than the way you're treating them. And so this, this remembrance of the people that have been good to us is really a good thing. And it was a, quite a noble thing, what happened in Jabesh Gilead. But now let's read on into first, Second Samuel chapter 1, because it carries on on this story. So Second Samuel chapter 1. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, From where do you come? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, How do things go? How did things go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and, the, and, and are dead. Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called me, and I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I, I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me, because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head, and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I had brought, uh, and I had brought them here to my Lord. So, do you see why I made emphasis in the last chapter? Here is a man coming from the battle, and he's an Amalekite. He's coming from the, from the battle. And we'll learn a little bit more about this man. Let's, let's skip on down to verse 13. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Melechite. Then David said to him, How is it that you are not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? So, we know that this is a young man. He's an Amalekite. He says it, he, he says it twice. He says it in reference to what he told Saul. He says it in reference to what he told David. Now, who had David just come back from fighting when he delivered, when he, he got everyone back from, that had been fighting and that had taken his wife and all the other wives in Ziklag? The Amalekites. Do you think he was very happy with Amalekites at that point? He had just come back from fighting a huge battle against the Amalekites and he defeated them terrifically, except for 400 men that fled away on horses, young men, uh, on, on uh, camels. With a very small band, just 400, he defeated a much larger group of Amalekites. 
But at the same time that David was winning a battle, Saul was losing a battle. This young man comes and he has the crown and the bracelet of King Saul. So he was obviously there. That's no question. Remember when they came, it was the next day, it was the day after Saul had died that the the, uh, Philistines had found his body. It never mentions the crown or the bracelet. It mentions his weapons were there. So obviously this man had come across the body, had taken the crown, had taken the bracelet. But he claims to have killed King Saul. He claims that Saul's life was still in him, that he was badly injured. And he says, so I killed him at his request. That's what the Amalekite says. But guess what? He's lying. He's telling a lie. Oh, how could that be? A lie in the Bible. I mean, people lie. And the Bible is describing to you a lie. So people get all upset. There's two different stories here. No. One is the truth. The other is a lie. People lie all the time. Here's an Amalekite. He lied. Well, what's the advantage of his lying? Well, he knew, you know, it was well known that David had been anointed king of this land. Saul was still king. He probably wanted to get really in good with David, not only brought him the crown and the bracelet, but said, I killed him, thinking that this would, you know, really put him on David's good side. But we know there are inconsistencies in his story. First of all, because it says in the last chapter, two times, by divine inspiration of the writer, it says Saul was dead. All right, twice it says that. Moreover, he mentions horsemen and he mentions chariots. Chariots don't fight on top of a mountain. They just don't. Those mountains are really rocky. I've been on top of those mountains. It's, it's just, you know, stones all over. Now they've made roads through those. But as soon as you get off the road, you know, it's, it's grass and things, but, but rocks everywhere. Those chariots that had no suspension that would never hold up on that thing. And so there's these inconsistencies which are typical for lies. He talks about horsemen and chariots being there, chasing after Saul. He talks about Saul was leaning on his spear, never mentions anything about a sword being stuck through his chest. And he says, so, so I slew him, thinking that this would put him on David's good side. And so David says, who are you? He says, I am an Amalekite. So you can imagine how David's thinking. David just got done you know, tearing up a bunch of Amalekites that had almost gotten him killed with his own band because... His whole group had lost to these, had lost everything to the Amalekites, but then David had to recover all. So he's not feeling particularly good about Amalekites right now. Plus, Amalekites were under a curse. Amalekites were supposed to have been destroyed according to God's command. Now, he may, he could have been a slave that was a slave of, of the Israelites. He could have been just a wander, wandering through the mountain to pick up spoil. But he had been the first one to come upon Saul and he took his crown and took his bracelet, or the first one who was bold enough to take something, and came running back, and it took him several days to get down to where David was. David's in the south, so it took several days to get from Gilboa down to uh, where David was in, in Ziklag. And, and, uh, but you see this pattern that occurred. So this young man lies, and so David then has him killed immediately. Then David says in verse 14, Then David said, How is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said to him, Go, cut him down. So he struck him and he died. 
And David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So David had the Amalekite young man killed. And who did he call to kill the young man, the Amalekite? So he called one of the young men. He called one of the young men and said, go, cut him down. This is the job of young men. I mean, you call on young men to do heavy work, to take care of things like this. You don't call you know, some old guy. Say, hey, come over here in your wheelchair and, and take this guy out. I mean, no, you call young men. There is a place for young men. You know the first job of young men in the church? What was the first job of young men in the church? What? No, no, that, that, no, in the church. It's documented the first job of young men when it specifies young men in the church. It was to bury the dead. Uh, uh, it was to bury Ananias and, and his wife Sapphira. So, so when, they, when God struck them down, it says the young men carried the body out and buried it. And then the, then the other one, then the wife came, God struck her, and the young men carried her out and buried So that's the first job of young men in the church. But it is the characteristic job of young men in the church to lift chairs, to move things, to do tables. This is the job of young men. This is, this is not a new thing. So it makes sense that David would just call one of the young men. These are, these are competent soldiers and, and he just cut them down. But you see what happened here. Now let me, let me pick out something else here. It's a really interesting point. In verse 11, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so also did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and his sons, his son Jonathan, and for all the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. So if you look back in verse 13 of chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, it says, They took their bones, buried them under the tamarisk tree, and fasted seven days. So the men of Jabesh Gilead really were affected by the death of Saul. They really respected Saul. They fasted seven days. Here, remember, this was a band of men that had just done an amazing battle. And they marched very rapidly. They, over, they overcame the Amalekites. This Amalekite, it, it, then they come back to Ziklag. And so they had come back to Ziklag. And, and uh, uh, David was there in Ziklag for two days. And these men were just recovering from this. Then they hear this news, and what happens? When David hears the news of King Saul, he hears this news about King Saul, what does he do? He, it says that he tears his clothing. So he, he rents his clothing, and, and uh, it's not just him. It's not just him. It's, it's, it says he tears his clothing, and so did all the men who were with him. Remember, there's 600 men who were with him, 400 who eventually had gone on that, the last battle they had been in, 200 that were too tired to have gone on, but 600 men with him. It says they all mourned. They all tore their clothes. They wept and they mourned when they heard about King Saul. Well, why is this? Was Saul such a nice guy that, you know, they really felt bad? Saul wasn't a nice guy. Remember what these men had previously told David to do when Saul happened to go into the cave when the men were there? What did they say to do to, uh, to King Saul? Kill him. Kill him. He's here in the cave. Kill him. What happens when David went up on the hill and he saw, he went into the midst of, of, of the camp of, of Saul and he saw Saul and Abner sleeping? What did Abishai want to do? 
wanted to kill him. He said, let me just, just one, one hit with my spear. I won't have to do it a second time. Let me just pin him to the ground right now. They didn't particularly like King Saul. And for good reason. Saul wasn't a very nice guy. Let me recount for you some of the, the, the things that Saul did. He killed 85 priests in cold blood. Right there. They didn't lie to him. He assumed they helped David, but they said, yeah, we helped David. But we didn't know that he's running from you. Too bad. He had them killed. Then he goes to Nob, to their city, and he kills their wives, their children, every one of them. There's only one kid, a Beathar, that happens to escape with the ephod and go to David. But he kills them all. I mean, this is not a nice guy. He tried to kill David with a spear in the palace two times. Not just once, but twice. Where he tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. Not a nice guy. Um, He tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, with a spear in the palace. He tried to have Jonathan killed by other men. When, when Jonathan violated the, the, the oath that had been given, um, Jonathan didn't know that, that Saul had taken the, this, made this proclamation, but he wanted to have him killed for that. He chased David for more than ten years, multiple times trying to kill him. He lied numerous times to David, saying, yeah, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm very sorry, I'll never do this again. And Then he lied. He came back and tried to kill him again. So this is not a nice guy. And he bitterly complained about others, saying that nobody was trying to help him. But you look at David. Look at what David does. When he hears that Saul is killed, he doesn't go, yes. Finally, the Lord has avenged me. I didn't have to do it with my own hand. It says he tore his clothes and he wept for the man. I mean, how can you have such love? Think of people that have done you wrong. Not that you want to go and strike them down and kill them. But if they've done you really wrong, and it should happen that they die. It should happen that they die. I mean, are you going to mourn and fast with mourning for them? I mean, this goes to show how deeply David could forgive. David really understood this pattern of forgiveness. Now, what's amazing about this as well is that his men, who are not all of them good men, remember that there were a bunch of them, it says there were wicked men among them who didn't want to share with the other 200. And these men who had come, these 600 men were in debt, they were discontented, they weren't getting along, and that's how they ended up banding on with David. It says that they also... It says in verse 12, they mourned and they wept and they fasted. In verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so also did all the men who were with him. Look at David's influence, how much they followed David's example. David is mourning, we will mourn too. A leader sets the pattern for those under their authority. A leader sets the pattern. If you have a man of prayer as, as, as a leader of a church, many people in the church start praying. If you have in a business place a good boss who is a leader and an example, many people will follow that example. Many people follow the example of the person in charge. If that example is poor, they follow that example. One student once came to me and, and she was attending another university 
and she was not in chemistry, this was in, the, in another subject, and she was saying how this professor is always hitting on his young female graduate students, and always making suggestive talk, and he had a, uh, he had a group party at his home, he had a lot of alcohol, people were drinking, and it turned into a, 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 a topless swim fest. And this was a professor in their home. Now I'll tell you, this has never happened in any of the gatherings of my research group. As the leader is, very often people will follow. If any of my, my uh, uh, I, I don't use nasty language in front of my students. So on occasion when, when words, when my students will say things that, that kind of slip out, and I know how that can happen. I mean, you use certain talk, it slips out. They will look at me and apologize for what they've said. Not that I asked for an apology. I understand. I mean, there was a time when I used to speak that way, and it was very hard not to speak that way. It was a long time ago, but there was a time, so I understand that. But you see, as the leader goes, so often people will follow. People will follow your pattern. If you walk uprightly, people will walk uprightly under you. If you walk in honesty, people who are under your authority will walk in honesty before you. Now, not all of these men were controllable. We do know later on that Joab and Abishai were very hard to control. These were David's own nephews, daughters, daughters of his sister, Zeruiah. Very hard to control. So hard that they end up you know, killing one man that David had no part of his killing and he ends up cursing them. In, in, uh, and and that's uh, it's actually seen in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 3. He says, um, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 28, Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on his father's house, and may... And may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge, or who is a leper, or who takes hold of a distaff, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai's brother killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. So when, when they were so uncontrollable, at one point David curses them. And he couldn't control them. Yes, they were very effective soldiers in his kingdom. But he would, they would never come close in his inner circle as a result. So you can have a very good leader, but not everybody necessarily follows. The vast majority end up following. So remember, when you're a leader, you will set the tone. You can hear circles, even you don't even have to be a leader, but you can be sitting around a water cooler and people complaining. And you can, you can speak one word, good word, and say, you know, it's not really that bad here. We really have it pretty good. So, for example, you're sitting around the water cooler in chemistry and people are bemoaning that you know, they don't get paid enough and it's you know, long hours. One thing you could say is, well, you know, we are getting our degrees out of this. We're not paying for it. In fact, they're paying us. If you go to law school or medical school, you've got to pay for this. This is not really that bad. All it takes is a little bit of a conversation. Boom! The, the word just changes the whole conversation. You have the ability to change the demeanor in an entire group of people by speaking a positive word. You can have a group of people complaining. You say, you know, I kind of like it here. 
It's kind of nice. You know, it's much better working here than being a roofer. You ever see how those guys work? Got to carry all that roofing material up on a ladder and then work out in the blazing sun in Houston, pounding nails into a roof. That's real work. You know, here we are sitting around in this air-conditioned room and complaining. You know, and, and you change the whole conversation with very simple words. Here is a man, David, and he's a young man. He's only in his late 20s at this point. Maybe 30 at this point. And he changes, you know, these are gruff, older men. You know, tough guys. Toothless and mean. and Lots of hair on them. And, and uh, um, you know the type. Lots of hair. They're just mean guys. And David can just take the whole conversation and turn it around. So much so that he rents his clothing. They say, we're going to follow his example. You can do this as a leader. This is what David did. The man was very unusual, but a born leader. Let's pray. Father, as we have had the great blessing of completing 1 Samuel, Father, I thank you for the truths that you have taught us. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be like King David, to take up the things that you've caused us to take up, to be leaders, to be good examples. Father, I pray for the grace of God to abound upon these young people, that you will do a great work in their lives and the blessings of God would see them through. Father, your grace abound, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.